Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One-sixth of the Earth's land surface qualifies as desert. Although we may think of deserts as empty and lifeless destinations, in fact, they teem with activity. Remote and forbidding terrains, they also tend to be areas where people travel to escape society. William Atkins is one of those people. His new book, The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places, takes us on a personal, historical, and literary journey from Britain's nuclear test grounds in Australia to Amman's empty quarter to the U.S.-Mexico borderland, Nevada's Burning Man Festival, and the Dry Aral Sea of Kazakhstan. Here's my conversation with Willie Matkins, recorded yesterday. The new book is The Immeasurable World, and uh, Willie Matkins joins us uh, from London. Thank you so much for taking time. It's a great pleasure. Uh, so you write uh, in the beginning of the book, um, this book took off when a relationship uh, ended, but previous to that, you had spent time in a, in a monastery. What, uh, what took you to the monastery? Well, it was in the course of researching my first book, my, my last book, uh, which was a, uh, an account of the moorland landscapes of England, so um, wild places of a very different kind. And I stayed with a community of Cistercian monks on the edge of Dartmoor in southwest England, one of our few remaining islands of anything resembling wilderness. And in the course of that stay, um, I spent some time in the ancient library of the monastery. And there I began to discover a connection between uh, the desert landscape and the Christian monastic tradition. And this goes back to the Desert Fathers, as they were known, of the 2nd and 3rd century in Egypt. And these were individuals, men and some women, there were, there were some desert mothers as well, who fled the cities of, of 2nd, 3rd century Egypt, Alexandria chiefly, and went to the desert in search of, well, in search of God. And so uh, that was one of the starting places for this book, um, and one of the originating points for my interest in desert landscapes, and particularly the relationship between deserts and spiritual traditions. So the, the monastic life, and you you lived there in the monastery for a while, right? It took part in the, um, and it's uh, you know it's five forty five is the first um, the first service, right? And it continues. It, it, it was uh, yeah. I mean, I was there for two weeks, so, so oh, not, two not, weeks. A, okay. not a very okay. long while, but enough to get into the rhythm of the um, of the daily monastic offices, as they call them. Yes, and starting very early in the morning, and uh, with the the last uh, mass very often, very late at night. Later in the book, your last chapter, uh, you go you go to Egypt and uh, the you know following the Desert Fathers and the monastic life there. Um, let's say I'm trying to find the quote here. Uh, one of the monks said, "A monk's work is to be hidden." Yes, yes. I mean, and in, in a sense, that chapter brings the book. That closing chapter brings the book full circle uh, and takes the book back to its kind of originating point, which was the Desert Fathers, as I mentioned. And in that chapter, I, I spent uh, a few weeks, in fact, um, at St. Anthony's Monastery, uh, which is in the eastern desert. It's a Coptic monastery, eastern desert of Egypt, between the Nile and the Red Sea, and probably the oldest continually active Christian monastery in the world. And it was built on the site of um, where St. Anthony, um, who was really the originator of the, the Desert Fathers, um, settled in the late 2nd century. Um, and uh, yes, to be hidden. And I think one of the interesting things about that experience of, of meeting those, uh, those extraordinary men, the, 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 the Coptic monks in, in the Egyptian desert, was 
my understanding of the tension that exists for them between being for Copts in Egypt, um, which are rather a, a beleaguered population, I think it's fair to say, Christian Copts, who see the monastery as a place of pilgrimage, and it's very important to them in their, in their spiritual life, so they will go to the monastery on feast days. And then on the other hand, the, the monastic existence, which is, as, as you say, as, as the gentleman you quoted said, to be hidden, to be, uh, to be um, in a situation of, of solitude and solitary prayer much of the time, and how it's possible, or is it possible for those people to exist both as a place of pilgrimage and, and at the same time to enjoy the kind of solitude of the monastic um, life. And so there was, I was, I was conscious of a, a kind of tension in a lot of the, uh, particularly the younger monks I spoke to there. Mm. Uh, t- you uh, you treat a bit of the history of St. Anthony, right? Um, uh, tell us a little bit about that. And his was a classic physical journey, right, from the fertile Nile, and then he ends up in in, in the desert, but also a spiritual journey as well. Precisely, yeah. I mean, it, I mean little, relatively little is known about St. Anthony. I mean, we're talking, uh, well, 1,800 years ago. Um, but what is known or what is understood is that he, as a young man, um, he was bereaved. His, his, his mother and father died. And for whatever the reason might be, he, he decided to take himself off away from his, his village uh, in the Nile Delta into the Egyptian desert. Uh, this is in the very early days of, of Christianity. Uh, and he became a figurehead. This, this, this man, St. Anthony, the star of the desert, as he was known, um, became a figurehead for other um, Christian men and women who, who were seeking some kind of spirituality. And so at first they followed him out into the desert and, and maintained these solitary lives. But the desert being the desert, um, it's more practical to, to live a, 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 a communal life. And so there was a kind of uh, movement of these scattered individuals who were, who were anchorites praying alone in the desert uh, into communities. And these were the first, these were the first monastic communities. Um, and so, yes, St. Anthony was really the, the, the uh, originator of, of, of the Desert Fathers, and in that sense, the originator of um, all of Christian monasticism, you could say. What were they, well, St. Anthony, what were the early, the Desert Father? what were they seeking? What were they, what were they striving for? What was their goal? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. The, there's a word um, used in the, the writings of the Desert Fathers. Um, it's an a, a ancient Greek word, uh, paneremos. And uh, paneremos is the centermost desert. Um, we, we get the word eremetic um, from, from eremos, uh, and this has the same root. But paneremos was the centermost point of the desert, the most desolate part of the desert, the, the most deserted, if you like, um, part of the desert. And I think there was a, a sense in which the Desert Fathers, and, and a lot of those who have followed the Desert Fathers into the deserts, um, were seeking this kind of um, uh, absolute point, this, this end of the rainbow point, if you like. Um, but I think they were also, well, there's a, there's a, certainly on my part when I first started reading around this subject, there was an assumption that you go to the desert in search of tranquility, in search of peace and silence. 
But I think for, for the Desert Fathers, those first men and women who went into the Egyptian desert in the 3rd century, they went there as if to a kind of battleground to do, to do battle with the desert. And so the desert was not a, a place of, of peace. It was a place, in a sense, of violence where, where you, you confronted the devil, you confronted the devil's minions, you confronted the devil's temptations. And there are a lot of very famous um, paintings um, depicting precisely that, um, the temptation of St. Anthony, painted by Velasquez and Bosch and, and um, Salvador Dali. And so, um, yes, the desert, uh, not simply as a place of quiet contemplation, but also as a place of, uh, of kind of spiritual battle. You were, you say you were drawn to writing about the desert, right? Uh, or reading about the desert and writing about the desert. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you think that impulse in you is? It's, it's a question I, I, I try to answer throughout the kind of course of, of, of writing this book and researching and traveling for this book. And I think, in a sense, it's a question that I only uh, succeeded in elaborating uh, and making more complex. Uh, I'm not sure I ever came to a, an answer about precisely what attracts me to that landscape. But I have an interest in, you know, as you'll gather, in the, I'm an atheist, as it happens, but I have an interest in monastic traditions. And I'm very interested in that relationship between monasticism, the kind of solitary impulse of monasticism, if you like, and the landscape, and to what extent a landscape can reflect or echo something one finds or sees in oneself. Um, and there's a link here for me between, well, the Desert Fathers we've just been speaking about, and contemporary or, or, or modern-day uh, explorers of desert places, people like Wilfred Fessiger or T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and I think those individuals very often, they saw something in the desert that echoed, echoed something in themselves, uh, perhaps a kind of sparsity, but perhaps also a sense that they didn't feel at home in their homeland. I think that's particularly true of someone like T. E. Lawrence. He found something in that marginal landscape that that, uh, that reflected something he saw in himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't want to overstress that connection in myself, but um, but these are questions I'm interested in. Uh, tell tell me about uh, Wilfred Thesiger. Um This is um, he's famous for exploring what uh, the 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 empty quarter as they, as they came to be known. Precisely, yeah. The, 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 the opening chapter of the book is really uh, a, a, a kind of uh, collected biography of, of some of the um, Englishmen, and they were English and they were principally men, who explored the Arabian Peninsula and specifically the so-called empty quarter, the Rubal Kali, which is this vast sea of sand um, uh, the size of France, which occupies about a third of the Arabian Peninsula. And I speak particularly about, well, I mentioned uh, uh, Wilfred Thesiger, and he was, he was um, he's probably the most famous uh, explorer for crossing the empty quarter. But I'm particularly interested in Bertram Thomas, who uh, in the 1930s um, was the first uh, outsider, at least, to cross the empty quarter. And I find him interesting partly because he's become something of a marginal figure. Um, Wilfred Thesiger is, 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 is much more famous as an explorer, uh, partly because he wrote this wonderful book, Arabian Sands, based on his travels. Um, but Bertram Thomas, for me, was a more curious figure because he was the first to achieve this extraordinary feat, and yet he has been somewhat overlooked by history, I think. Um, and uh, he, in some ways, is quite a sad figure because um, 
from his exploits. Uh, Bertram Thomas didn't achieve that in quite the same way. His notoriety is much less, and he died in, in some penury um, uh, with very little fame. Uh, and so he, he's an interesting figure for me. And I, I attempted in a, in a modest way to, to follow in his footsteps, to, to trace part of his journey into that uh, extraordinarily demanding landscape. What was Thomas or Thesiger, what, what were they looking for? You know, in some ways, explore, exploration is a test, right? You're testing yourself. Um, yes. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think, yes, the kind of personal test. Uh, I think there, to some extent, there's a kind of colonial um, patriotic element in, in, in the impetus for that kind of travel in that post-colonial period. But I'm interested in the deeper impulses that, that, that as you'll, you'll gather, that have drawn people like Thesiger, Bertram Thomas, um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia to these places. And again, this brings me back in a way to that question of, well, flight versus quest, you could say. Uh, and very often what we, we tell ourselves is, is a quest can often be a, a flight from something else, I think. And I, I think Thesiger and, and, and Bertram Thomas and to some extent um, uh, um, T.E. Lawrence they they were fleeing something as well as in quest for something. Tell us about the empty quarter. You've 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 been there. Yeah, I, sp- I spent uh, I spent some time there, uh, uh, tracing in a fairly modest way some of the the, the footsteps, if you like, of of Bertram Thomas. Um, the empty quarter is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Um, I was there it's nearly four years ago now. Um, it's like awaking in a kind of dreamland, is how I think of it, uh, or, or on another planet. Um, you travel north from the coastal city in Oman of Salala, you over the limestone mountains, and then gradually the landscape um, flattens. It, it atomizes almost. So you, you begin with quite rocky terrain, and then a kind of boulder field, and then gravel, and then grit, and then finally sand. And from maybe 20 miles away, you see the edge of the desert, these towering reddish-pink dunes. And in no time at all, you're, you're, you're in this maze-like environment of, of, of dunes with, uh, intersected with, with kind of corridors. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a fun place to drive around, actually. You can drive as fast as you like along these very flat corridors that intervene between um, the, the dunes. But it's, it's simply a magical and very, very beautiful place. And for, well, like many desert places, for all its apparent sparsity and simplicity, um, it's a very stimulating, uh, exciting place to be. Um, and I think what I learned from spending some time in, in that, that sandy, um, uh, very beautiful environment is that places that kind of at first glance appear to be lifeless are often thriving and full of, and full of life. It may not be visible to you at, at first, but deserts are very rarely dead in any real sense. Hmm. But, but they have that reputation, don't they? It's, it's forbidding, um, you know, uh, deserted, yes. right? It's, yeah, they, well, they, quite, yeah. And, and, and they are forbidding, and they are, by virtue of the lack of water there, they're dangerous places, uh, they're perilous places. But, of course, it's that very lack of water um, that makes them what they are. Um, and you could say, I think, that part of the appeal, or for many people, is that it is precisely the peril of, of being there, the demands, the physical demands of 
being there, as you say, the, the, the test of, of traveling in, in very dry places. One of the themes, um, these places, is kind of a tension between, you use the word colonialism, you know, Western explorers come in uh, to, do, to do firsts, right, or to test themselves or to flee, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, local, you know, uh, native accounts or native experiences right. tend, to, tend to get lost. Um, you know, the first explorers coming in from the West, empty quarter, um, we're going to be the first, mm-hmm. but, but of course, <laughs> locals would have crossed across the empty quarter yes yeah and of course we we, and we we don't know those 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 stories i mean um i think probably when Thesiger and, and and thomas uh and their like told their local bedouin guides that they wanted to cross the heart of the empty quarter they thought they were mad frankly um because it's not something one does unless one has to um but yes you're right i mean the the, the, the in a way at the heart of the book is is a kind of attempt to bridge the gulf in, in, in understanding between, if you like, the native, the indigenous experience of these landscapes and the, the incomers' experience of these landscapes. Um, one example of that would be uh, South Australia. Um, I spent some time at Britain's nuclear test sites, a place called Maralinga in, in, in South Australia. And... For me, that was a, a, a case study in precisely that, that failure of understanding on the part of those uh, white Westerners who first encountered that landscape, who saw it as um, a place that was a void, that had no value, no meaning, that was empty. And that continued and indeed continues to this day, but certainly continued up until the 1950s and 60s when Britain tested a series of nuclear bombs in in the Great Victoria Desert at that place called Maralinga. And they felt able to test these these devices in in this landscape because they regarded it as a place without a population and without any value and without anyone who valued that place. And so those those, uh, indigenous people, the Aboriginal communities, the Anangu, as they're called, who had been crossing that land for 50,000 years, um, were were kicked off, and the land was, to all intents and purposes, permanently contaminated, permanently destroyed. And so, yes, that question of the the disparity in in the way uh, different communities value a particular piece of geography, and indeed see a particular piece of geography. And you have said that uh, one of the, I guess one of the few uh, holds on power, sources of power for their Aboriginal people is is their knowledge of this land. Yeah, and I I hesitate to to, to presume to speak on on their behalf to any great extent, but that's my sense, is is that 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 continuity of knowledge, continuity of story, um, stories that that, um, go back for hundreds of years unchanged and quite probably for thousands and quite probably for tens of thousands. And so, yes, that continued con- continuity of knowledge and that extraordinary depth of knowledge about a, about a place that, as I say, uh, to an incomer, to somebody unfamiliar with that, that um, landscape can seem to be without value, without meaning, without story or narrative. Um, so, yes, and it's an extraordinary thing to, to, to maintain that level of knowledge and it seems to me a kind of defense against um, the, the maltreatment of those communities
uh, illustrates the power of narrative, power of story, right? Power of history. I think I yes, I think I think I think that's true, and I think one of the the challenges I set myself in researching and writing this book was to was to find those stories in these places where story um, is not necessarily particularly accessible uh, or particularly visible, and where very often there the written record is quite sparse, um, by virtue of there being a re- usually a relatively sparse population. And so inhabiting the, a, 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 what may appear to be a kind of blank canvas with, with narrative is yeah, one, of the, one of the challenges of, of the book, I think. And the, you know, because the, the British, I guess, didn't, they didn't, if they knew about any history here, they, they didn't accept it, right? And so this was, it was just a big empty space, nothing valuable there that we can essentially destroy it. Oh, well, that's it. And, and the, the British, in fact, I mean, had been um, uh, party to nuclear intelligence um, obtained by the Americans. Um, through through their their tests in in uh, well in New Mexico uh, the Trinity site, um, but there came a point where the U.S. for for strategic political reasons ceased to share uh, atomic and nuclear bomb information uh, with even its allies, and so Britain needed somewhere to test its bombs um, and to gain that that nuclear intelligence themselves. And of course, there's nowhere in in this kind of small green cramped island that I'm speaking to you from uh, that would be remotely appropriate for that. So they needed somewhere big, uh, somewhere dry, so that the contamination doesn't uh, contaminate the um, the water table, and somewhere secure. And really, the only place available was was Australia, and the Australian government uh, very quickly obliged. Um, but yes, you're right that it was it was part of the the uh, one of the things that made it appropriate in the minds of the Brits and the Australians um, was that it was it was just a blank, it was a void, there was nothing there. And if they were aware of a population there, and I think they were aware of a population who made use of that land, that population was not granted any uh, any any rights in this in this decision. So they, as I say, were were um, were kicked off their their ancestral land, and the land was was I mean even to this day uh, contaminated. And of course, there would have been similar reasoning, um, some similar history here within the U.S. You know, you go, you go to a desert place, yeah. you go to Nevada to to construct your main test site, for example. Yes, yeah, and, and similar similar uh, histories in terms of well, the 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 the, um, uh, the indigenous uh, population in those places, but also in terms of a kind of wider contamination to the wider. Uh, Australian and 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 American population. Um, it's interesting to compare those nuclear test sites. In fact, I've I've been to the Trinity site in New Mexico, um, and if you stand at Ground Zero in Maralinga, um, in in this vast arena where the uh, where the the, the, nu- the Brits nukes were were set off, you you walk across the what was ground zero and the ground underneath your feet kind of crunches as you walk and this is the stuff that it's, it's basically glass fused in the in the heat of the explosion so sand fused into glass kind of green glass by the heat of the explosion and the same precisely the same material was created um in new mexico at the trinity site um and they call it in fact trinitite this kind of glassy um, stuff that really had never existed anywhere else on Earth before. 
Um, and so, yes, the, the, so there are echoes um, between those two sites. And indeed, I think you can see echoes in other desert places where uh, nuclear tests have been undertaken. Um, I spent some time in Xinjiang, in, as you said, in, in northwest China, um, where the Chinese government tested its nuclear bombs until the, the mid-90s. Um, in the Sahara, uh, the French tested their nuclear bombs. In India, in the Thar Desert, nuclear bombs have been tested. So yes, deserts are very often places where we do our dirty work. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, uh, maybe even more spectacular example spectacular in this case in a bad way i think many of us would would say of um uh, humans spectacularly changing the landscape want to talk about the rlc or what used to be the rlc uh, as we go along and we'll uh, talk about sonoran desert the black rock desert and burning man as well some other places uh, journeyed to by william atkins the the uh, new book is the immeasurable world journeys in desert places more following this break Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 4th Annual Randy Worth Half Century Ride, Saturday, August 11th. Partners with the Stokes Nature Center to improve bird habitats along the Logan River Trail System. Registration information at randyworthhcr.org. From the Me Too movement to Russian hacking in the 2016 election, the next Intelligence Squared U.S. debate asks this question, are social media good for democracy? The Internet has brought diversity to the public square and the public conversation. Manipulation of users is the goal. Undermining democracy is merely a side effect. That's next time on Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah, and we're talking uh, today with William Atkins. His new book is The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places. We've reached him in London um, so, William Atkins, before the break, I referenced the RLC. This, uh, if people are not familiar with this, um, this is this is just um, it's tragic. I think most people would would say, uh, "Tell us, uh, tell us the story." It's a, it's a it's a it's a great tragedy, and I think one of the iconic um, environmental disasters of, of the 20th century. Um, the RLC um, lies in well, Central Asia. Um, between uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And until the early 1960s, it was the fourth largest uh, inland body of water in the world, um, I think 65,000 square kilometers. Um, in the early 1960s, uh, the Soviet Union uh, made a decision to become self-sufficient in cotton. Uh, and I should say Central Asia is, 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 a, is a very arid region. The RLC lies in a, in a, a region of what they call Aral Steppe, so very dry, flat scrubland. And the result of this decision to become self-sufficient in cotton um, was to destroy the RLC. Uh, cotton is, well, it likes sun and heat, but it also likes water, so it's thirsty. And so a decision was made to uh, draw off water from the, the two feeder rivers that, um, that uh, feed the RLC uh, in order to irrigate cotton fields. And the effect of this was to effectively dry up um, most of the RLC. And so over the course of uh, 40, 50 years, the RLC, as it, certainly as it was, was, was no more. And the situation is somewhat improving um, now in the north part of the RLC, 
But in the South, I think people have given up hope altogether, and it's really regarded as a lost cause. And for me, what was interesting about that particular place is that it's effectively a man-made desert. They call it the Aral Kum. Uh, Kum means sands in, in, in the local Turkic dialect. Uh, so the Aral sands. And you can now you can, you can walk for miles on the, the, the bed of the one-time Aral Sea in a place where the water at one time was fathom, fathoms and fathoms deep. You can uh, visit um, fishing villages, um, fishing villages that have probably been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And those villages now are often 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles from the shore. You can walk across um, a one-time bay of the Aral Sea and you can see um, the hulks of abandoned fishing trawlers that have just been left high and dry, quite literally, um, where the water is withdrawn. And rather like uh, Maralinga, um, the Australian nuclear test sites, these are man-made deserts. And I mentioned earlier that um, deserts, for all their apparent sparsity, natural deserts at least, feel full of life and very often feel as if they're thriving places. Whereas these man-made deserts, the RLC nuclear test zones we've discussed, they feel like truly dead places, places of despair. Yeah, it is, it is uh, just, uh, just tragic. And so a man-made desert uh, in a time where uh, desert areas are increasing, right? They're, you could say they're coming for us. Well, it, yes. Although I think there's, a, there's a, a, a mistake we make, and certainly I've made in the past, of, of viewing um, desertification, as it's known, as a kind of marching of deserts, an expansion of, of natural deserts. Whereas desertified places, um, you find them in the Sahel and the, kind of the, the southern borderlands of the Sahara, you find these desertified places on the edge of the Taklamakan and Gobi deserts in, in northwest China, you find them certainly in the southwest USA. Um, but these are places that are that have been, well, partly because of a wish to draw more from the land than the land is able to give, have been have been turned into dead places and deserts in the in the original sense of the word, um, meaning kind of uh, deserted places, uh, unpopulated places, and um, uh, dead places, and so whereas yes, the natural desert somewhere like the the, the Sonoran Desert, the wonderful Sonoran Desert in, in uh, Arizona, uh, and the Empty Quarter and the the Great Victoria Desert um, feel like thriving, living places. These desertified zones feel like dead places. Um, so you you. I guess I want to ask us superlatives from you, from your personal experience. What, uh, what, what places from the from the place these desert places that you've uh, gone has has most struck you? Well, I, me- I mentioned um, the uh, the empty quarter. It's simply one of the most beautiful places I've been to, and and just such a great pleasure to to, to be in such a, a a wonderful place. I I think other places that stay with me. Um, well, for example, the Takla Makanda that I just mentioned in northwest China. And it stays with me not because it's 
I, I, I found it to be a particularly beautiful place or, 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 or a place where it was possible to enjoy much leisure. But um, because it's such a very difficult place, partly in terms of the aridity of, of the Taklamakan Desert, again, it's a dune desert, um, but the dunes are less iron-rich than the, than the um, dunes of, well, for example, Australia or the Empty Quarter. So not that red color, but more a kind of gray certainly in my experience, the air is full of dust. Um, the political situation in Xinjiang is extremely difficult. The people are, those I met, were unhappy. And so the relationship between the politics of the region and that landscape became interesting to me. So that's a superlative of, 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 of grimness, if you like, um, a difficult desert experience. But I also think of well, Arizona, I spent some time, uh, just a couple of weeks in a straw bale hut in the Sonoran Desert, not very far from, from Tucson, um, alone with a big barrel of water and, uh, enough couscous and canned fruit to keep me, uh, to keep me alive for, um, a couple of weeks. And despite the, the, the solitude of that experience, I think it was maybe 10, 15 miles away from the nearest uh, inhabitant. Um, yeah, despite the, the isolation of, 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 of that place, um, I never for one moment felt remotely alone or indeed lonely. Um, it's, yeah, one of the, one of the, the great tranquil experiences of, of my life. And I suppose the Sonoran Desert is, a, is an instance of one of those deserts that is, is full of life and is in fact very green, um, less arid than some of the deserts I've, I've mentioned earlier in this discussion but um but very green very beautiful abundant quite noisy as as many of your listeners will know who have, who have been to that part of, of 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 the us um but uh yeah i think those might be kind of poles of my experience a good one and a bad one i want to talk about the your experience in the sonoran desert um one little detail struck me you uh you for the most part would sleep outside just outside the 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 hut right and and you would put mm. uh pan pans or cups of water you'd put the bed uh legs in in pans or cups of water why do you do that well the the this is this is some advice i've been given to uh to keep out um cone nose kissing bugs um but also uh tarantulas and anything else that might want to um snuggle up with me in my bed um and so the idea is you you put these the the, the feet of your your cot in in uh cans of water dishes of water and they're less likely to uh to want to uh, get in with you um i didn't actually have the experience of, of waking up with anything unpleasant next to me but um but uh who knows if it, if it, if it actually fended them off or not <laughs> yeah little details uh, you know better 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 not than than yes um so so you say that the desert at least the sonoran desert is quite noisy yeah yeah i mean um the cicadas principally um and it's i think perhaps because of the the very silence of, of these places any noise is more pronounced it's a characteristic of course of of deserts that um uh noise is more pronounced but also um simply uh well vegetation um where the landscape is particularly sparse every single uh cactus or or or, or palo verde um saguaro um that one encounters has a kind of magnified significance and i think you can say the thing, same thing about sound and so yes i i was aware of 
a lot of noise. As I say, the cicadas that kind of come into voice early, early in the evening and carry on for most of the night. Um, but also the yelping of, of, of coyotes and, uh, uh, and so on, and the the, uh, the noise of um, of mice in the roof of the uh, the. Uh, the um the straw bale bale hut um so yes noisy and yet peaceful at the same time a kind of peaceful racket hmm. sonoran desert would be an example of how geography in your words can become a cordon and an executioner i write um about uh some time i spent in tucson and particularly in the uh, desert between the Mexican border and, and Tucson, which is an 80, 80 90 kilometer stretch of desert, um, and particularly the uh, undocumented migrants who are attempting to make that, that extraordinarily perilous journey. And so, yes, on the one hand, I began to see the, the desert as a barrier. Um, we hear a lot about the, the current president's uh, plans for his 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 uh, big beautiful wall as he calls it and yet it seemed to me from the, the little time i spent in that area that a wall already exists and that wall is is the desert and if 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 you're able and prepared to cross 80 kilometers of uh landscape as perilous as that then um probably you're able and prepared to to cross any wall that might be built you, I think you worked for a time with an organization that left, um, I guess, food and water out there for any of the markets? Uh, yes, I, 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 I did. I, I were a wonderful organization that, um, that uh, simply attempted to save, save the lives of, of uh, people who found themselves crossing the desert and would, would go out early in the morning uh, for five, six o'clock before the, the heat really intensified and leave... Uh, mainly water, but also food and, and, and socks and so on, along established migrant trails. Uh, and it's, I think they would say it's, it's a, a modest act and, 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 and uh, 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 the, 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 the most they can, they can attempt to do to try and uh, ameliorate some of the suffering of those, those people who are crossing the, the, the desert. And it, I spoke to some, some young uh, Guatemalan um, guys who, who, who had... Uh, made precisely that journey and had encountered some of those water drops. Um, but it was, for me, it was really an opportunity to spend some time with those those uh, aid groups um, and above all to experience in a, in a, in a, in a small and rather safe way um, the challenges of that environment. Yeah, challenges of that environment, you know, that's, it can be deadly. Um, let's take another break. We'll come back more with William Atkins. His new book is The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places. I want to talk about, uh, and uh, William Atkins did a lot of reading, has done a lot of reading, as well as writing on deserts. I want to talk about a couple of writers. One, be very familiar to those in the western U.S., uh, Edward Abbey. And another one I had not been familiar with uh, that William Atkins refers to a few times, John C. Van Dyke. He wrote a book called The Desert in uh, 1901. Um, illustrating that uh, the desert has fired our imaginations in literature and uh, popular culture. And we're talking about Burning Man as well. More following this break. Support for agricultural reporting on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Veterinary Medicine, training the next generations of veterinarians to make One Health a reality and benefit for everyone. Details at vetmed.usu.edu. 
Utah Public Radio is celebrating our 65th anniversary and would like to thank Gem City Fine Foods for becoming one of our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, call 435-797-3138. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with William Atkins, author most recently of The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places. And uh, William Atkins, um, so... um, Edward Abbey, what uh, what did you get? What have you gotten from Edward Abbey? He's, uh, um, you know, he wrote very famously about um, arches where he worked uh, here in Utah. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't, in fact, write about Abbey in, in the book, but of course he he's a presence in in the book. I think one of the the great describers of of uh, well, landscape um, generally, but uh, particularly arid landscape that that, that landscape that he knew and, and loved so deeply. Um, I think I, in a way, see him as part of a, a continuity um, of uh, desert lovers, desert explorers, if you can call Abby an explorer. Um, and I see some echoes in his character um, with people like T. Lawrence, people like Wilfred Thesiger. Um I think he was, it's fair to say, notoriously ornery um uh, and not the easiest character and so i think what i find intriguing about him as well as just simply loving the way he writes is this great tenderness he can show on the one hand to to people to to the places he loved and yet at the same time a, uh, a certain kind of cruelty and a certain kind of bitterness towards towards people and so that uh, that those that those Tendencies can uh, coexist in, in, a, in a single individual is interesting to me. And I think also you can see some uh, connections between, certainly in his writing, but perhaps in his character as well, um, between Abbey and the other man you just mentioned, John C. Van Dyke, who was a great influence on, on Edward Abbey. Tell us about John C. Van Dyke. I have not been familiar with him. You make reference to him uh, several times. An art historian? I think uh, an art historian uh, by training, and uh, in his time, fairly, I would imagine, I think the the best known art historian in in the U.S. Um, in 1901, he published a book called The Desert, and this was a, a an account of a, a journey into into um, I think principally the, the the Sonoran Desert, although the geography isn't entirely clear. Um, and it was really the first book, uh, certainly in the United States, that saw the desert as something other than simply a kind of impediment to progress, uh, something that was in its own right beautiful, that had aesthetic value. And so he writes these wonderfully rich descriptions of, of desert sunsets, for example, that extraordinary clear, um, subtle light and changing of light that you, you get in desert places, um, as well as the, 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 the geology and the natural history of those places. But for me, he is an interesting figure, partly because he was so seminal in, in, in recognizing um, aesthetic value in desert places, um, but also an interesting character in his own right. Someone, I think it's fair to say, who wasn't particularly fond of people. Um, there aren't very many people at all, if any, apart from himself, in his book, um, The Desert. And he has a certain cantankerous edge 
that reminds me somewhat of, uh, of Edward Abbey and indeed some of the other um, uh, desert uh, aficionados we've talked about. Is that, uh, is that a theme that you have found uh, true, that people want to get away uh, when they go to the desert? I, 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 it's, it's very complex, and of course everyone has, a, has different reasons for, um, for, for going, going to desert places and being drawn to these particular landscapes. I think there is a misanthropic element among, among um, those who are drawn to deserts. Um, I think you can perhaps see a connection between, well, someone like um, John C. Van Dyke or Abbey or T. Lawrence or Wilfred Thesiger, any of those, those modern-day desert explorers we've talked about, and the uh, Desert Fathers, second, third-century Egypt, who were, were seeking something but also perhaps fleeing something at the same time. And so um, while I don't think the Desert Fathers were necessarily misanthropic, um, I think there is sometimes a kind of a tendency to misanthropy among uh, some of the desert explorers we've been talking about. Uh, you wrote an interesting piece in The Guardian. Uh, this is this is a recent piece um, titled From Lawrence Arabia to Breaking Bad, The Desert as a Cultural Oasis. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, um, and so I, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. Uh, we talked about uh, this man, John C. Van Dyke. You, you mentioned him in the book. Mm-hmm. You mentioned him in this article. Um, you also go to uh, popular culture, Breaking Bad. There's a there's a famous episode where where um, this uh, high school um, what chemistry teacher that's, who's that's turned right. turned. Yeah, uh, yeah well, this is this is um, it's a wonderful, quite early episode of, of Breaking Bad. Um, in which um, I'm going to forget the name of the main characters now. Let me remind myself. Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh yes, as well. of course, it's Walter White. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. Yes. Um, well, Walter, the, this this um, uh, former high school teacher, now turned mess cooker, and his associate Jesse go out into the New Mexico desert, um, not far from Albuquerque, uh, to cook meth to to to, to make this drug uh, meth in a, in a in an RV, um, and of course. In the tradition of every great uh, uh, desert story, the RV runs out of power and they get stuck in the desert. Uh, it's interesting to me because I do see those echoes of lots of classic desert stories in in in, in their predicament in that in that particular episode. Uh, there's a wonderful moment where Walter White, um, to keep the heat off his head, puts a white towel over his head and wraps it round with a bungee cord. And it's an echo of a scene in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the great, great uh, movie, um, where Lawrence um, wears a, a, a Bedouin headdress, a white Bedouin headdress. Uh, and I, I assume that echo is deliberate. Um, but yeah, Breaking Bad is, I suppose, one of the more um, famous cinematic, modern cinematic treatments of, of the American desert. And I think one of the great strengths of that 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 um, wonderful series is is the the uh, relationship between the inner city, that very um, uh, urban environment of Albuquerque, and then the uh, the desert on the other hand, and the the proximity of of, of um, all the the uh, uh, criminality of of that urban environment, and the danger and peril of that urban environment, and then the tranquility, and indeed the danger and peril. Uh, of of the um, the desert itself. So the, uh, the this character, the two characters, 
essentially geographically uh, take a similar journey uh, to St. Anthony's, right? Start an urban center and uh, drive the RV straight out into the, into the desert. may not be yeah. the same yeah, spiritual I mean, I, journey, And but. again, it's, it, you can see, certainly see that, 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 that echo there, I think. And again, seeking, well, seeking freedom, actually, seeking freedom from, from in their case, law, or from oversight or from judgment. Um, and you mentioned Burning Man earlier on, and I think, again, you can see, see, uh, uh, see that tradition extended into a very different experience. Uh, again, going to these, these uh, isolated, difficult places in search of a certain kind of liberation or liberty. Uh, tell me about Burning Man. You, you went to Burning Man? I I did yeah I spent um, I spent nine days at Burning Man. Um, Burning Man. I mean, some of your 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 listeners I'm sure will be uh, familiar with with this phenomenon. Um, uh, at the end of August every year, um, around seventy thousand people congregate on this vast playa, as they call it, this ancient dry lake bed um, in. Uh, uh, I'm going to forget where it is now. Nevada, right. uh, not not far from uh, not far from uh, Reno, in fact. Uh, and it's, I think you can think of it in terms of a perhaps a music festival, but it's not really a music festival. There's not really a, a program of events. Um, there's a series of uh, extraordinary themed camps. Uh, there's quite a lot of nudity. There's quite a lot of drugs. So I think it's fair to say. And the most exciting thing about it. For me, or one of the most exciting things about it for me, is that you have this utterly tranquil, still unpopulated, relatively unpopulated landscape for most of the year, which is transformed into essentially a city um, for this this this, uh, this week at the end of August. And then everything is taken away, everything is cleared up, and the desert is returned to its tranquility. Um, but also, I was interested, as I said, in 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 Burning Man as a uh, as a phenomenon that exploits the kind of liberties that we experience or or, or are um, allowed to experience in in desert places, um, and I was also interested in the tension of of that uh, that experience. I mean, it, it, I was very much outside my comfort zone. I think it's fair to say, probably even more outside my comfort zone than when I was in the Gobi Desert or the Taklamakan Desert, um, because on the one hand, you can look out uh, beyond the, the fence that surrounds the Burning Man site and see the playa stretching away for uh, tens and tens of miles to the north. And you can look to the east and see in the far distance a range of dark mountains. And so you're very conscious of the tranquility of that environment. And yet behind you is the absolute chaos and bedlam and noise and excitement and music of, of of Burning Man, and so I would often find myself standing at the edge of the Burning Man site, looking out slightly um, uh, uh, longingly to this uh, peaceful, quiet environment, and yet knowing that I had to go back, I had to go back for the next week to the to the noise and excitement behind me, and so I was outside my comfort zone, and yet it was an extraordinary experience, and it's, it's an extraordinary phenomenon, Burning Man, I think. It, it is. It is interesting. This is. This is not so much an escape from civilization because you you essentially bring, you know, you bring a, a, a town out into the desert. But but trying to free the constraints, I guess, of of civilization. Is that what they're trying to do? I I think there's there's 
building uh, the sense in which it's an attempt to build an ideal society, a build, build a, a society from a temporary society from from scratch. It kind of materializes, as I say, over the course of uh, a, a, a few weeks and then dematerializes. Um, and so, yes, you're you're able those people who attend, those 70,000 people, you're able to do that because of the luxuries of, of modern society. So you can take your your RV along if you want to, though most people uh, camp in tents or yurts, I think it's fair to say. You can bring your water with you. You can bring some of the comforts of of home life. Um, but it remains a very demanding environment. It's, it's not physically, it's not an easy place to be. It's very dusty. It's, of course, very hot. Um, it's very windy. And so it's it's physically, uh, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, pretty testing place to be, actually. Well, it's a fascinating book. Uh, the book is The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places. William Atkins is the author. His first book, The Moor, was shortlisted for the Thwaites Wainwright Prize. And uh, his journalism has appeared in Guardian and Granta. And in 2016, he was a recipient of the British Library Eccles Prize. And we have reached him in uh, London. William Atkins, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at UPR.org.